0: Hello! Welcome to the normal bank failure episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. Emily Peck of Axios is also here. Elizabeth Spires is here. Hello. And yeah, we're going to have a second bank episode in a row. Last week was, you know, recorded before everything went completely pear-shaped. This week is recorded after everything went completely bear shaped So we are going to talk about Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, Credit Suisse, First Republic, a little bit of Silvergate. We are going to dive into answering your questions. Thank you for sending them in. We are going to talk about monetary policy. We're going to talk about bank regulation. And basically, we are going to explain what the hell just happened. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So let's jump in with Silicon Valley Bank, which we did cover a little bit on the Slate Plus last week. We talked all about the problem that it had many fewer assets than it did a year ago, because interest rates went up and they owned a bunch of mortgage-backed securities. And we were chatting away about how this was potentially a problem for it. And then it went from being potentially a problem to being an existential nightmare ending in its failure within about five minutes of our podcast coming out. So, um, Elizabeth, you wrote about this in the paper of record. What is the big headline here?
2: So, the big headline, I wrote about this because I was an SVB client. I guess I still am, but now it's the SVB Bridge Bank. Um, the big headline is that, so on Thursday the 9th, a lot of people, SVB clients, began pulling their deposits from the bank all at once, and this caused a bank run. And their rationale for doing so was that uh, they believed the bank was insolvent. Uh, the bank had invested deposits into longer-term maturities that uh, became problematic when interest rates went up. So no bank is really equipped to deal with people pulling out deposits all at once.
0: It was it was $42 billion in one day, which is just an absolutely staggering amount of money, Um The largest bank run in American history before Silicon Valley Bank was at Washington Mutual in 2008. And that was $16 billion in 10 days. This was $42 billion in one day. We have never seen anything like it. And a bunch of people blamed Twitter and a bunch of people blamed the fact that You know, Silicon Valley Bank's deposit base was very small and they all knew each other and there was a bunch of venture capitalists who, all, you know, they were all on the same text threads. But a lot of it was just the fact that there was a relatively small number of depositors in Silicon Valley Bank. And it didn't take that many of them to pull their money out. They happened to have just enormous amounts of money on deposit. One of the weirdnesses of Silicon Valley is that private companies, startups, would keep millions and millions of dollars just on deposit at the bank um, because they were far too busy you know, building software or something than to, to, to bother to put that money somewhere that it could earn interest. Um, and so, yeah, there weren't very many of them. They all knew each other. There was rumors of a bank run. And then the rational thing to do when you hear rumors of a bank run is to get your money out first. And so they all, there was just this enormous bank run.
1: And then what happened was, <laughs> so, so that happened um, on March 9th, which was Thursday. And by Friday, the the bank's stock, uh, trading in the bank's stock was halted. And then the, the feds take control. The FDIC comes in, shuts down the bank, and everyone heads into the weekend with stomach aches, not knowing what's going to happen, but thinking that the FDIC might find a buyer, which is a typical thing that can happen to a smaller bank. Um, And the question going into the weekend was, what's going to happen to the uninsured deposits at this bank? And what was unusual, as you both have reported, is that most of the deposits at the bank were uninsured. They were above the FDIC's $250,000 cap. So the question was like, Will the venture capitalists be wiped out? And then, of course, the chatter was: it's not just venture capitalists; it's struggling entrepreneurs, and there's payrolls to think about, and you know. um, And then by Monday, the Fed said everyone is going to depositors are all going to be made whole, uninsured or not. Um, We're going to do these emergency measures and let people let banks borrow money from us, and we're going to let banks um, borrow on the full. Felix will explain this better, but on the full value of their assets, on so the
0: par value of their assets, yeah,
1: the par value, right. So they went to sell their assets, their securities, and the they weren't worth as much as they had said they were on their books. So they had to take a loss. And the Fed is saying, if you just you don't have to sell, you can just borrow on the par value. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of a shenanigan, if you ask me.
0: I don't think it's a shenanigan at all. I think this is exactly what really a macroprudential bank regulators should do. Like banking, by its nature, is a public service. It always, you know, shakes hands with the government. The whole reason why people feel safe having their money on deposit at a bank is because they don't need to worry about like is my bank credit worthy and that kind of thing. And it is important for banks to be able to lend through a cycle. It is important for banks to be able to make long-term loans to do this thing called maturity transformation. That is the job of a bank, to borrow short and lend long, to take in these deposits which are callable overnight and then go out and lend them into into the business world. It is natural for interest rates to go up and down over the course of that cycle, and it doesn't make sense for banks to be forced to mark all of those assets, their loans, to market according to what interest rates do when they're holding them to maturity and when it is their job to make long-term loans and when they you know are going to support their clients through the cycle and get paid back when the maturity of the loan comes to you now in this case it was a little bit different because it wasn't really bank loans it was just they were just buying mortgage-backed bonds but in principle it's the same thing and it is the job of the fed to shore up the banking system and I wrote about this in my newsletter today that like what banks do is they lend money and support a whole bunch of non enormous businesses if you are one of the 15% of Americans who works for a big S&P 500 publicly listed company then sure you know your company can get by with capital markets and investment banks and bonds and stuff like that. But for everyone else, which is like 85% of employees, those are companies who really require good old-fashioned banking relationships. And the Fed needs to be able to support those banks. And I think they did exactly the right thing.
1: And a lot of banks took advantage of this on Thursday this week. So a week after everything kind of fell apart, uh, we learned that the Fed lent 150 thousand $3 billion to banks since opening that emergency window, which is a record, um, I believe. Yeah, way past the the peak in the financial crisis. Although I'm not sure that number's adjusted for inflation. But basically what it shows is that banks took advantage and there was a need for the Fed, I think, to do this.
0: And, and I think this is also really good as well. Like the Fed the fed has this discount window right the whole point of any central bank is that it has to act as a lender of last resort um on sunday night the fed came out and said we are really leaning into this lender of last resort thing we're going to reduce the um the haircut that you need to take when you post collateral to us we're going to value the collateral at a very generous valuation and we're really encouraging you to come and use this discount window And one of the problems was that back in 2008, um, banks were very reluctant to take advantage of that for reasons that no one entirely understood. And that caused real problems. Um, The good news right now is that banks are not reluctant to go borrow from the discount window, they are doing that. Um, and the stigma, such as it was, that was associated with the discount window does seem to have gone away. And uh, thank Christ, because like this is no time to worry about discount window stigmas.
1: Okay, but so the Fed announces that, clearly banks took advantage. And yet, and for a second, there was sort of like a pause in the crisis mode <laughs> that the media and, and the market seem to be showing us. There was a little pause. And then, nope, nope, it wasn't over yet. It wasn't over yet, right? I mean, things still weren't feeling right yet. So then the next shoe to drop, I guess, bank stocks were still falling. And then Credit Suisse comes into the picture. I mean, this has all happened in one week. It's so wild to me.
0: Yeah, the fact that Credit Suisse decided to pick, like, this week to implode was just incredibly, like, unhelpful of it. You know, like, Credit Suisse has been slowly imploding <laughs> for the past 15 years. Like, they could have waited another few months. Seriously, guys.
1: <laughs> so so that kind of happens in the middle of all this. And then the Swiss say, don't worry, we'll loan Credit Suisse some money. So everyone's like, phew, okay, so Credit Suisse is fine. It's not, it's not too big to fail.
0: C- C- Credit Suisse is not fine.
1: But then after that, I think the next day, um, there's an announcement. First Republic, another regional bank in the U.S., is kind of stumbling. And somehow Janet Yellen got the biggest banks in the country to agree to deposit $30 billion there to shore up those banks.
2: It's kind of important to note here, too, that First Republic is also a favored bank for early-stage tech startups, Probably, you know, one of the banks that behind SVB people use a lot. So it's
1: very similar to SVB.
0: Yeah. And First Republic, while it doesn't have quite as many uninsured deposits as SVB, certainly has a lot. And what, and First Republic, while it doesn't have quite as much of a bad assets problem, definitely has a bad assets problem. And First Republic is facing the same kind of solvency issues that SVB was. To the point at which it actually did get downgraded to junk this week, which is not something any any bank particularly wants, and it's very difficult for like a major bank like First Republic to operate, you know, indefinitely with a junk credit rating. in in the In the short term, it's fine because it has access to that Fed discount window and all the rest of it. Um, But what was interesting to me um, was that there was this really interesting sort of gathering round of all the big banks in america wells fargo jp morgan goldman sachs morgan stanley you name them they all came along and said we're going to come up with 30 billion dollars and just put it on deposit at first republic as a vote of confidence in first republic like this is uninsured deposits and we're just going to buy we're just going to put up money on deposit with first republic because we think that first republic is a you know a bank that the system needs and we will do whatever it takes to make sure that it can withstand this mini banking crisis that we're going through. And it was this weird, you know, and almost heartening um, moment of solidarity in the banking industry, which is often extremely competitive.
2: Well, I think it was cooperation and self-interest because I think everyone was terrified that this was going to spiral out of control into a contagion that affected every piece of the banking system, regardless of, you know, what the depositor basis looked like.
0: Yeah, I mean, the fact is that the banks we're worried about here are the regional banks like First Republic um, and and Signature Bank, which also failed on Sunday night, by the way. Um, it's not the big, too big to fail banks, right? So there are a few what's known as GSIBs, um, Global Systemically Important Banks. So that would include JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citibank, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. Bank of New York Mellon, those are the banks who have seen massive deposit inflows this week because they're too big to fail. Everyone knows that there's no way that any depositors are going to lose money leaving money on deposit with JP Morgan. And it was those banks, the ones the ones who no one is worried about failing, who kind of rescued First Republic. But you are right, that just as an industry, it's in everybody's best interest for the banking industry not to have a massive rolling crisis. And it's, you know, and and... We looked like we'd pretty much smoothed the waters on Sunday night. First Republic wasn't taken over on Tuesday morning. It looks like there wasn't a massive bank run after, you know, the wires went out on Monday that had already been scheduled. But then we had some, you know, other bad news. Some of it from Switzerland. Um, certainly that back, that credit rating downgrade didn't help. Um, and one of the other things that is probably unhelpful is that most of these regional banks and First Republic is definitely one of them Silicon Valley Bank as well and Signature Bank and Silvergate Bank they were all public they were publicly listed stocks and in the absence of any actual information about what's happening to their deposits people just start looking at the stock price and banking right now doesn't look very attractive for these regional banks because this you know this emergency credit that they're Um, accessing from the Fed is not cheap. Um, Their solvency issues, which we talked about in Slate Plus last week and we've mentioned a little bit this week, you know, are not great. And, you know, it's kind of a natural time for bank stocks to be low right now. And when bank stocks are low and banks are inherently incredibly leveraged you know that's what fractional reserve banking is what that means is that you know you can get these kind of terrifying you know oh my god such and such a bank is down 40 percent today and then people think that's really bad and that alone just the stock price can cause a bank run and and that is like a really unfortunate um sort of death spiral mechanism and I kind of wish that a lot of these banks weren't public right now for exactly that reason.
1: Um, Felix, one thing you said that I've been thinking about a lot that I hope we could unpack maybe is that too-big-to-fail banks, I mean, they come out of this looking really good and they saw, you know, more money flowing to them and they stepped in to even save another bank, you know, very like 1907 J.P. Morgan vibes there because he famously, the banker back then, got other banks into a room and force them to save to do a a bank rescue you know um anyway it seems like too big to fail is good now
0: right i know doesn't it yeah am
1: i missing something but it's not supposed to be like i'm i'm really flummoxed by this because in the u.s it seemed like it was a kind of good thing like everyone was like well at least the big banks are safe because they're too big to fail and that's great and everyone put their money there whatever then overseas, at the same time, you see the Swiss bank, Credit Suisse, which has just been like mired in controversy and scandal and like is obviously not well managed or hasn't been well managed, get rescued by, this, by the Swiss government. And you're like, wait, that's why we don't like too big to fail. So I don't know how to think about too big to fail anymore.
0: Right. So the way to think about too big to fail is that you know some banks really are too big to fail. There are 30 of them. You can look up the list. It's on the Internet and when you have that designation when you have that official g designation you have to operate under very very strict ultra enhanced scrutiny of bank regulators both domestically and internationally for precisely the reason that you are too big to fail no one can allow you to fail like it is literally impossible for credit suites to just fail so when push comes to shove, the Swiss National Bank had no choice but to lend it another 50 billion Swiss francs because it's too big to fail. And everyone knew that was going to happen. Now, what happens to the stock price? We don't know. What happens to, like, the Cocos, which I don't know, we've talked about on the show before, the contingent convertible debt, that kind of stuff, we don't know. But the bank itself has to go on because it is just too big and just too interconnected to fail. And therefore, it has to operate under this, very sort of strict scrutiny from its regulators, just as the big banks in the U.S. have to operate under strict scrutiny from their regulators. We are now living in this post-2008 era of what's known as like Basel III and macroprudential, blah, 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 which basically means that the kind of crazy leverage that those two big-to-fail banks had back in 2006, 2007, will we'll, no one's allowed to do that anymore.
1: Well, one question is, was SVB or First Republic, should they have been too big to fail too? Because clearly the Fed said they pose a systemic risk. So why weren't they also designated in that way is sort of a question.
0: that Well, we'll they to were small enough to fail and Silicon Valley Bank did fail. That's the difference, right? The Silicon Valley Bank, Quay Bank was not failed out but silicon valley bank failed all of its shareholders were wiped out all of its executives were fired all of its bondholders were pretty much wiped out you know we as of this taping don't know whether it's going to survive we assume that it you know bits and pieces will get sold to someone or other but like yeah it's a failed bank just like washington mutual was a failed bank like you you're allowed those banks are small enough to fail
1: well then it doesn't just to go back to too big to fail being quote unquote good now. It it doesn't seem that good to me if like JP Morgan and Chase has like Jamie Dimon's making millions and millions and millions of dollars and his company is basically backed by the US government. It's like quasi nationalized, is it not?
0: Yes. Yeah, it is. It and and this is totally understood and they have to pay like an extra fee basically to the government in order to make up for that and it is understood that you know the provision of credit like what well, you know is is a fundamental part of what drives any economy right banks create money mm-hmm. if you want to start you know going into the really boring like mechanisms of like how money growth happens and that kind of stuff like without banks the economy doesn't work and certain banks are too big to fail and it just like It is possible to imagine some incredibly egalitarian banking system where there are a thousand banks and all of them are small enough to fail and there aren't any which are too big to fail, right? Like, in principle, that might be possible. Like, remember the slogan back in the financial crisis that you used to hear every so often of, break up the banks, right? They're too big. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that even if you even if you did break them up into like any cons- any sensible kind of constituent parts right you 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 shave off the investment bank from the commercial bank you say you shave off like you know this bit from that bit like even then the the commercial bank heart of it remains too big to fail right there's no there's no country in the world that has a lot of small enough to fail banks. There's, there's no country in the world that has a lot of small enough to fail banks and no too big to fail banks. It just doesn't exist in the wild. In In an ideal world, perhaps we can think that that would be great, but like, I've never seen it anywhere.
2: Yeah, this also kind of essentially illustrates the, the increasingly public nature of the banking sector. You know, It's completely dependent on Uh, government guarantees and government charter but we talk about it like it's entirely private it's
0: it's totally not entirely private right we like the whole like I, i i don't know if you've noticed this right but whenever there's a bank ad on slate money we always say at the end member fdic Right, it's it's like the first, It's actually like something you have to do if you're advertising yourself as a bank, or if you're presenting yourself as a bank, is to tell everyone like we are working with the government here. The FDIC is the government. This is this is a partnership with the government, and the reason you can feel safe depositing your money with us is precisely because the government da- is is guaranteeing your money. Banks everywhere, by necessity, are always a public utility and they always are regulated by the government and um you know and and a quasi public as you put it in that way like this there is nothing new in here and in fact it has to be that way so sure let's take a break and we have some questions you guys have been amazing at asking us questions via email slate money at slate.com so let's maybe answer some of those after the break And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2%, on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently
0: Marcus wrote in and said, I was wondering about the ownership of SVB now. I understand the government has backstop deposits. Is SVB now owned by the government and what does that really mean? Um, short answer is yes. We have nationalized SVB. It is now Um, Elizabeth, what did you say it was called? Silicon Valley Bridge Bank?
2: It's technically Silicon Valley Bridge Bank.
0: Um, The idea being that this is like a bridge bank that won't last very long and eventually is going to get sold to someone else. And then when it's sold to, let's say it's sold to, I don't know, Barclays, then it will just become part of Barclays and it won't exist anymore. It'll just be, you know, Barclays at that point. But for the time being, we have a U.S. government-owned bank called silicon valley bridge bank there's also another u.s government-owned bank in new york which is running what used to be signature bank and this is what happens when banks fail is the fdic comes in and basically nationalizes them um this is good right
2: yeah in the case of silicon valley bridge bank the government's basically guaranteeing all deposits for a year and i think they're assuming that they'll be able to find a buyer sometime during that period
1: I was remembering when I was growing up, I guess that was back during the time, I wouldn't know this because I was too young, but it was during the time of the savings and loan crisis and like hundreds and hundreds of banks failed. And I remember going to the bank um, and the FDIC or whoever, I don't know, had you know taken over and there was like a new sign taped up over the old sign of whatever the bank used to be called. Um, it used to be pretty common, uh, but it hasn't been um, post-crisis to see a bank fail and get taken over. So I think people may have forgotten kind of how it works and how the FDIC knows what it's doing, you know?
0: M- Marcus continues and says, um, why would the government have to take it over if the deposits are backstopped? Couldn't the bank just use this new Fed program to borrow all the money it needs to pay the outflow of deposits? Um another good question it does it is one of those cases and you see this quite a lot in in finance where like you you solve the problem going forwards for every other bank so if you're first republic or if you're pack west you get to take advantage of this program but if you're the bank that like caused the problem in the first place then no, so you, you don't get that special treatment. You just get intervened and taken over. Um, Barney Frank was on the board of Signature Bank, and this was one of the things he said. He's like, if you're going to announce this incredible you know, Fed window, then Signature Bank wouldn't need to fail, right? We could just borrow everything we needed from the Fed. And... He's not wrong, but the regulators have made it clear that they kind of didn't like Signature Bank, partly because it was very involved in crypto, partly because there were other controls that they thought were missing, and they just didn't feel like they trusted Signature Bank enough to allow it that privilege of accessing this extraordinary Fed window, so they just took it over
2: instead.
1: Are we going to do a whole sidebar about Barney Frank?
0: Sure. What what do you want to say about Barney Frank?
1: Well, I would like to say that Barney Frank is the Frank in Dodd-Frank, the much-hated financial regulation bill that made too-big-to-fail official. And anyway, it's a get-tough-on-banks kind of a bill, as people probably know, and Barney Frank's name is on it. What people didn't really realize is that after he retired from the Senate, he wound up on the board of this bank, Signature Bank, which got a lot of its deposits from the crypto industry. And back in 2018, when Trump was in office and they wanted to roll back some of Dodd-Frank, Barney Frank went back to Congress and said, this will be fine. (laughs) And he was also on the board of a bank when he said it. And it's sort of interesting what happens to legislators after they leave Congress that is the side note about Barney Frank.
2: Yeah, there was a there was an interview with um with New York Magazine, I think, and he was complaining about the the takeover because he says the DFS, New York's uh, regulatory authority, uh, didn't actually say that Signature was insolvent, and he also argues that uh you know they didn't have that many crypto depositors, but that seems disingenuous yes. when crypto was thirty percent of their deposit base. So even if it was two or three, what does it matter? I mean, and what what do you think about the insolvency argument?
0: I don't think it matters, right? One one of the important parts of what we're talking about with this very um, close relationship between banks and regulators that is ne- necessary in a world, you know, of of government deposit insurance um, is that. The regulators don't need, don't have like a very strict set of criteria that all needs to get ticked off before they intervene and take over a bank. They can do it with any bank for any reason. And with, Sign- with Signature, they were just like, okay, this is too much for whatever reason. And they haven't spelled out their reasons and they don't need to spell out their reasons. But they have made it clear that in this auction for Signature Bank, they're now running and they, you know they're trying to find someone to buy it they fully expect the new buyer of Signature Bank to not bank any of those crypto companies. So the, crypto, the crypto accounts are just are basically not included in the auction.
2: Yeah, the other industry that I, I think uh, they, they have a lot of heavy concentration in is commercial real estate, particularly in New York. Uh, my, my ex-boss, Jared Kushner, I think had accounts there.
0: Interestingly, there is one other in- industry where they're very, very big. They're by far the biggest banker to Broadway so if you, mm. want, if you want Broadway shows to keep on going strong, we have to hope that C- Signature Bank finds a sympathetic buyer who understands how Broadway works. It's one of those things where like, there are certain industries where just bankers really understand that industry, and just so happens that Signature really understands Broadway. It also, by the way, lost a whole bunch of money lending money, lending money against taxi medallions in New York City. That's another weird Ooh. business that it got into that it probably shouldn't have got into.
1: What's the next question, Felix? Marcus had
0: one one last bit. He said, "Is there a limit to how many banks the government would take ownership of? Would the government do this for a larger bank if conditions became worse? No, and yes. Like as we saw in Savings and Loan, you know, there is no limit. And one of the reasons why the FDIC did what it did, what it did, and the." Um, full extent of deposits were guaranteed, not just the insured deposits, but also the uninsured deposits, is precisely that it would be more expensive for the FDIC to only insure insured deposits up to 250,000 than it is to do what they did. If they made it clear with Signature Bank and with Silicon Valley Bank that beyond $250,000 you are on your own, that would cause a huge bank run at thousands of bank, uh, thousands of banks across the entire country, thousands, hundreds of banks, like at least a couple of hundred banks would end up failing, and that would be more expensive for the FDIC than just insuring everything at SVB. So yeah, th- this is, if you want the details on that, you can look up Fridays at Axios Markets. where I went into detail about that.
1: Now we're in this weird world where <laughs> everyone kind of woke up to the fact that deposits over $250,000 are not insured. And there's sort of like a new worry about those deposits, which is leading some people to, or some companies maybe, or some money to flee from the smaller banks to the bigger banks, where it's still true that money over two, you know, $250,000 or more wouldn't be insured, but they're too big to fail. So maybe it's safer to put your uninsured deposits there. Thus, like feeding kind of some kind of like doom loop cycle for the smaller banks. What do you think of that?
0: So there's there's a couple of things going on. That's definitely happening. But also like – there's right now there's no good reason for anybody to have more than $250,000 on deposit. The deposit rates are not particularly mm. attractive, right? You can keep your money in like treasury bills which are just as liquid as a deposit account and you you can earn 5% on that. Um there are also things called ICS cash sweeps there's a company called InfraFi InfraFi which used to be called Chrometry, um that that you know will allow you to Insure millions and millions of dollars, you know, rather than just 250,000 dollars, they do clever things where they slice up the deposits and like put it in a bunch of different banks, and you just deal with one bank. Um, there's a lot of ways to keep millions of dollars insured or, you know, um, safe. And what kind of befuddles me, I have to admit, is why so many companies had so much cash have so much cash just sitting on deposit with banks. Silicon Valley Bank like was a kind of outlier on this that you had these startups and these venture capital companies just having millions of dollars in the bank because they were, you know, Silicon Valley and that's what they do. But even through the rest of the con- country You know, roughly 50% of deposits at basically every bank in the country are uninsured. And it always kind of befuddles me why anyone would have any uninsured deposits, especially when, you know, Treasury bills are yielding so much.
1: I mean, I don't think anyone realized, maybe this is wrong, but didn't seem like the people realized the risk at play with the uninsured deposits. There was like a feeling of safety.
0: Yeah, and we did, you know, there was this, one of the problems, and honestly this was kind of the biggest problem with with Silicon Valley Bank, and the reason why it caused more of a crisis than really it should have done is that it failed on a Friday mid-morning rather than failing on a Friday afternoon, which is when banks normally fail. Um, The way the FDIC normally works is it comes in on a Friday afternoon after the bank closes, they wrap everything up and by Monday morning it's reopened under a new brand, under a new shingle, under new ownership. You know, The shareholders are wiped out, the management has been replaced, but like no one spends a weekend panicking about whether they're going to be able to make payroll. What happened here was that you had the intervention by the FDIC on Friday morning, and then for all of Friday and all of Saturday and nearly all of Sunday, you had a whole bunch of people going, oh my God, oh my God, what if I can't make payroll? Oh my God, I've just lost all my money. Oh my God, I'm panicking. And that panic started spreading beyond just Silicon Valley Bank to everyone who had more than $250,000 in their bank account. In the end, you know, it was fine. The, the government stepped in and said, "Listen, we're, you're you're fine. You're completely insured, even if you have over two hundred fifty thousand dollars in SVB or Signature." They've sent um, as strong of a signal as they possibly could that you know, if you're also at First Republic or Pac West, then you're, you're you also don't need to worry. And you know, it, they had to do that because of all of that panic. If they'd only been able to wait until Friday afternoon to you know close down svb then there probably would have been almost much much less panic i would say next question next question from damien basically what should svb have done with the asset side of its portfolio um you know they bought all of these mortgage-backed bonds and the bonds went down in value and they became insolvent and then there was a bank run so that was bad um what should they have done? Basically, the answer there is manage your interest rate risk. Like the San Francisco Fed, you know, should have been much more on top of it. That was the, their main bank regulator. And they should have been much more on top of it. And they weren't. And certainly a Silicon Valley bank should have been much more on top of it. And they weren't. They went eight months without a chief risk officer that's like a really bad look. It was known within the bank that they were taking a bunch of interest rate risk and this was very risky. And so it was known within their regulator that this was very risky. And somehow they managed to keep on doing it and they were allowed to keep on doing it. And that was a regulatory failing and that was a management failing. And they should not have taken that risk and it is not necessary to take that kind of risk. You can make floating rate loans instead of fixed rate loans you can do interest rate swaps. you can do lots of things you can just put your money on deposit at the federal reserve the federal reserve will pay what's known as interest on excess reserves ioer there are lots of things you can do with your assets which don't involve buying long duration mortgage bonds come on people
2: Yeah, when the when the bank failed, it had, you know, reported that it was in the process of restructuring its portfolio for shorter term instruments and hedging with swaps. So, you know, it sort of raises the question of why they didn't do it sooner.
0: Yeah, the reason they didn't do it sooner was, you know, they they got a little bit greedy, but yeah, no, it was it was a terrible terrible move. And and we have a question from PT Withington saying the FDIC will make up any losses to the insurance fund essentially by levying an assessment on all banks. So I wonder if that will make all banks a little more circumspect about the pursuit of profit at the risk of their depositors. No, I think is the answer. Like I don't think that banks think that way. And as I say, like if you look at what the FDIC did, um, they basically prevented. A bank run. They prevented losses to the insurance fund by saying everything is insured. It's a bit, um, it's a bit. What's the word? Paradoxical. But the more they insure, the less they need to pay out in insurance. Because if your deposits are fully insured, then you don't need to withdraw them. And if you are not withdrawing them, if you're just keeping them on the bank at the bank, then the FDIC doesn't need to pay anything out. Um, Emily. You got another question via text message about central banking.
1: Yes, it's a really good question, I think. As a Slate Money listener, I would like to hear whether the Fed moves this week could be construed as quantitative easing and how that is likely to impact its mandate to bring down inflation and restore price stability. In other words, what the heck? The Fed is now lending out all this money to banks at a time when it's supposed to be not doing that when it's supposed to be taking money out of the system, it's supposed to be bringing down inflation. And our colleague Neil Irwin, I believe, has a piece out about this um, on Friday as well. But I'm curious what you think, what do you guys think.
2: I think not yet. I don't think that uh, you know, this week's activity has been you know, large enough or aggressive enough to constitute QE again.
0: I would say quite the opposite. I'd say that we've actually had tightening um the what the Fed tries to do when it raises interest rates is make people more reluctant to borrow money and make banks more reluctant to lend money because if they lend money out they're going to have to do it at a higher interest rate, which is going to be harder to repay, and you know they're going to have bigger credit losses and they try and sort of take the economy off the burner as it were like try and get Things to cool down a bit. What the banking industry as a whole just did is basically tighten credit conditions. Banks are in no mood to be lending out money right now. Borrowers are in no mood to be borrowing money right now. We just have much less credit now than we did a week ago. We have much less appetite for credit on the demand side. We have much less appetite for credit on the supply side. And for those reasons, the Fed kind of doesn't need to hike as much as it had thought perhaps because this banking crisis has had the effect of you know probably a 25 50 point basis point hike right there that's that's my theory that's, Yeah. far from this being QE this is like QT you know this is tightening that we're seeing
1: yeah I, the goldman had a similar note that what the the banking crisis means is that the fed has to do less rate hiking now because there'll be a natural pullback in lending and I guess spending because of what happened, which is really interesting, which would kind of offset whatever money the Fed lent out, right? Because lending out money isn't the same thing as quantitative easing, buying bonds. It's different. Yes.
0: Yeah, and exactly, and and the Fed remember that the Fed is only lending it to banks, right? If you if you lend that money to a bank, that and two dollars seventy five will get you on the subway, right? Like that doesn't actually affect the real economy. In order for that to have any effect on the real economy, the banks then need to turn around and relend that money out to individuals and businesses. And that's the big question. And I I don't see any indication that's happening.
1: I mean, up until this past week, all the economists, everyone watching the Fed had been saying like, those guys are going to break something. They're raising rates too fast. Something's going to break, you know. And like the Elizabeth Warrens of the world were saying, people are going to be unemployed. All the people are going to be thrown out. They're going to lose their jobs. But that hadn't really been happening except, you know, in the tech industry. And then now we see what broke, which was the banking industry. And that might have the same impact as raising unemployment would on inflation, right?
0: No, I think that's absolutely right. Okay, I think that's that's your question's answered. Let's talk a little bit more about central banks and monetary policy after this break. There is another super interesting question about central banks related to this crisis, Emily, which you wrote about this week, um, which is that the Federal Reserve is not only in charge of monetary policy, it's also the top main bank regulator in America. And specifically for Silicon Valley Bank, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco was the main regulator of svb and that yeah. feels like a weird kind of tension in fact the ceo of silicon valley bank greg becker was on the board of the san francisco fed um, you know yeah. on on you know when it comes to things like the san francisco fed needs to know about the innovation economy in silicon valley and no one knows that better than the ceo of silicon valley bank that makes sense but like It also creates this insane conflict where he's on the board of his own regulator.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Fed is not looking good coming out of this, um, and I'm not the only one saying it by a long shot. So uh, the immediate criticism is, you know, Silicon Valley Bank had regulators sitting at the San Francisco Fed bank examiners who are supposed to keep an eye on what it's doing and be like, hey, guys, hey, guys, interest rates is... They're going up. Like look, look at all this stuff on your balance sheet. this this is a bad. This is bad. Like you got to fix this. like that that should have been going on behind the scenes. There's a story out in Bloomberg last week that suggested it was going on. But even if it was going on, nothing really changed. Um And then there's this other kind of controversy brewing because the guy at the main Federal Reserve named Randall Quarles, Um, got a lot of attention during the the Trump years for saying he wanted to take a new approach when it came to bank examination. He was criticized for being, taking a, a friendly approach to bank examination. Some would say a more lax approach, et cetera. You know, he would say, no, I'm just trying to, he told me he was just trying to establish a due process. So, you know, bank examiners would the way they work with the banks made more sense and there was due process and fairness involved, but that really hasn't s- stemmed the criticism. Um, so it's not only the San Francisco Fed that's being criticized, it's also the the Fed Fed, because um, while they're not doing the actual examining of the bank, they're sort of setting the policies and telling the regionals how to do the examining, if that makes sense. They set the tone.
0: I, I will say it could be worse, right? Like, it could be the Swiss National Bank trying to regulate Credit Suisse. And if anyone has, like... If there's been a massive regulatory failure anywhere, it has to be that one. Because Credit Suisse, as we talked about, is too big to fail. It's a G-SIB. In America, at least, we haven't had any g run into trouble. Mm, um, Credit yeah. Suisse is just this bottomless pit of scandals and bribery and money laundering and tax evasion and... Green Sill and Archegos and you name it that, you know, whatever illegal activity you can think uh, that a bank might have ever done, Credit Suisse has been found guilty of and has been fined for. And now they just came out and said, Oh, and by the way, like our last two years of accounts have material (laughs) misstatements in them and we don't actually know how much money we made or lost in 2021 or 2022. You're like, come on, people. Like uh, when you are that big, when you are that systemically important. You have to have your act together. And it is really the the Swiss central bank's job to ensure that Credit Suisse has its act together. And they have clearly failed.
1: I mean, is there a mechanism? I mean, I understand on some level too big to fail, but there has to be a mechanism to be like, okay, we're calling it, you failed. This is bad. We need to start over. Like, can't the Swiss do something? It seems like Credit Suisse has run out of chances. Like, and what happens in the US if some similar kind of crisis royals you know jp morgan chase or goldman or whatever can the regulators come in and be like look i know i said you were too big to fail but you know uh, you should probably go out of business like
2: i think in in theory the the too big to fail banks here though you know that it would be an incremental process where they get fined and you know their penalties all the way up to that so it seems unlikely that it would get that bad right yeah well
0: i mean the, the one the one that we talked about last week right was wells fargo Wells Fargo is a G-SIB. Wells Fargo has a long series of um, management failures and oversights and criminal behavior, and it is operating under a consent decree right now. Um, you know, it's not allowed to increase its deposit base. It has it's, it's operating under a strict deposit cap, and and yeah, the the Federal Reserve and the other regulators are taking a very, very, very close interest in Wells Fargo and basically saying you can't so much as go to the bathroom without asking us for permission first. And, you know, that's kind of what you want to see, right? I mean, should they have been taken over? Should they have been failed? Should the shareholders have been zeroed out? Should the management have been fired? Well, you know, the fact is that virtually every single member of senior management who, was in, who oversaw, you know, that fake account scandal was pushed out you know and who were they pushed out by not the board it was by the fed
1: right and one of them now is carrie tolstad i believe is facing possible prison sentence which would be
0: and she just got fined 19 million dollars i think which is you know even even Mm -hmm. by even by wall street standards 19 million dollars is a pretty big amount of money i think we should have a numbers round there have been a lot of numbers this week but elizabeth you have one.
2: Uh, so my number is 50, and that's the number of bank accounts. An NBA superstar whose nickname is the Greek freak, his name is Giannis Atentakoupa. opened 50 bank accounts with each one holding $250,000 exactly because of the FDIC deposit limit. Uh, and this is an old story, but it's, it's from last year.
0: Someone tell him about Infrafi. Really, like you can do this thing called ICS, a cash sweep. The, the solution <laughs> to the problem of there is only two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in you know federal guarantee per bank account is not to open fifty bank accounts in fifty different banks. People, like, that is the wrong answer to that problem.
2: <laughs> I think this guy was just scarred from living in the Greek economy for so long, <laughs> and then came here and said, "This seems safe. I'll I'll do this." Good
1: problem to have, if you ask me.
0: Um. My number is five, which is the number of years ago that Joseph DiPaolo, the CEO of Signature Bank, said this. So this was five years ago. He said, In five years, a number of banks will not be around because of blockchain technology. He totally nailed it. He this is like such an oracle at Delphi moment, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he called he called his own death without realizing this bank's it. not around. exactly
1: (laughs) to be clear his bank is not around because of
0: blockchain Blockchain technology Technology. yeah
1: (laughs) do you want to know my number yeah my number is 64 i don't know if you guys have been paying attention to what's going on in france but 64 is now the new um retirement age there and it comes after the french president emmanuel macron forced through Raising the retirement age from 62 to 64, um, causing all manner of protests and strikes and just people just raging over this change. Um, He tried to get a vote for it in in French parliament. He wasn't going to have a vote. There's a mechanism apparently in the French constitution where you can like force through measures. Um, He basically put his whole administration on the line so he could raise the retirement age in France. Again... From 62 to 64, which I'm just fascinated by because I'm an American and I believe that I will never retire. Although, of course, you can take Social Security starting at 62. But anyway, I I don't know how you guys, if you guys have been following it or have feelings, but it's just the most French thing to me (laughs) ever.
0: No, it is gloriously French, right? Like going out on the street and protesting because like... (laughs) You want to retire at 62 and you, and now the French government won't let you retire until you're 64. That's, it's, Mm -hmm. yeah, like I love European strikes in general and French strikes in particular, but this is, this is a wonderful thing to, to strike over. And Americans would never strike over this, right? Americans would never protest over this because in America, like everyone feels like it's good and noble to work. And this is yes. and, and and in France, clearly, they're like it's good and noble to retire as early as possible, and I kind of like that.
1: Yes, yes, I feel like Americans both love Social Security, but yeah, they wouldn't actually take to the streets and set fires to anything or do anything wild. Set over this. fire as Plus, in, you
0: know you know fire f i r e financial independence retire early. That's that yeah. That's like that's what, now the French are going to start adopting that. So I want to have a Slate Plus segment where we talk to Elizabeth Spires about her Silicon Valley bank account, or her Silicon Valley bank bank account, I should say. Um, That's going to come up. But for the rest of us, thank you for listening to Slate Money. Thank you very much to Patrick Ford and to Anna Phillips for producing. Thank you for sending in all of those questions via email, which we didn't even need to ask you to do because you guys know us by now. SlateMoney at Slate.com. And yeah, we'll be back next week with more Slate money.